0: Our Heavenly Father, we just bow before you today, and as we stand in this service, we know that uh, we approach you with a spirit of awe and reverence because of who you are. God, we come together as a group of peoples to proclaim you as the Sovereign, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and we bow before you as your humble servants. And God, we pray that you've taken our words and our song and our service today as a beautiful, fragrant offering offered to you. God, I just pray for our family here today. I pray for the needs. I pray for the concerns, maybe the hurts. And God, I pray for healing. We also thank you, God, for your weekly provisions for us, for the things that you give us day in and day out, Not just our physical needs, but our emotional and spiritual needs as well. And God, we thank you for the ability to worship you in freedom. God, we remember those that are apart from us today. We remember the kids down in uh, Kentucky. And I pray, God, for a safe travel for them home today. We pray that you got a hold of them in a special and unique way at some point during this past week. So that when they return, God, we can see it in their face. We can see the blessings that you've bestowed upon them. And may they turn it around to their friends, to their families, to us in the church in a way that's pleasing to you. And God, I pray for Pastor Stewart as he was down there this week. And uh, God, we know that we've heard reports of a fantastic message that you delivered through him. I pray for energy and peace for him as, as he returns. God, we thank you for being here today. We thank you for allowing us this time to hear your word. And I ask, God, that you would multiply the words in abundance in our spirits today. Be with Kelly as he comes and gives us your message today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated.
1: Well, thanks, uh, Steve and crew. Phil Collins, I should say drumming and singing. Yeah, yeah. In more ways than one. Well, good to be with you this morning, and uh, I share with you your collective disappointment that Stu is not here. It's it's sad, but true, when you come in and you don't see his gleaming head and uh, smiling face. Uh, and... Uh, he was, in fact, with uh, with our teens and with about, I don't know, 6,000 other youth this week. And um, I have to confess, uh, I had some strange prayers this week because uh, Stu was speaking to about 6,000 youth on the Friday night uh, service. Um, one of, you know, only five main speakers. Uh, and and my, my prayer was strange because I wanted him to do well, but not really well because his phone is going to be ringing off the hook these next three to four months probably. Hey, come and speak here. Come and do this. And then you're going to be stuck with people like me filling in for Stu when he's away. So we want to pr- uh, pray for a reasonable response <laughs> to Stuart's success. Um, and you know, but I, I joking aside, um, you know we are just ridiculously blessed to have him uh as our pastor uh for a, a church our size um he is he is internationally known um, as a youth worker uh as a speaker and uh for us to have him uh as our pastor is a little bit ridiculous um and so we need to, to covet this time uh, and this season of life that we have uh, with him, and, and uh, we look forward to great things, and, and uh, so we'll, we'll congratulate him appropriately when he gets back. So I've titled... Do I have my title? I'm looking for my sound person. There it Title my talk today, and I'm careful not to call it a message or a, This isn't... A, I'm not a preacher. I'm a teacher. I'm a university professor. Um, in fact... Uh, Jody was very clear with me about the time that I speak today because my life is broken up into 75-minute segments. I am used I am used to speaking and holding... Well, not holding an audience because, let's be serious, none of them pay attention that long. Uh, but for commanding an audience for 75 minutes, Joel knows what I'm talking about, uh, and your life is broken up. So to speak any less than that is very difficult for me, but... Uh, I've entitled my talk today, Square Faith uh, in a Round World, and it's been a strange uh, spring for me, um, in the sense that some of you know I'm taking a sabbatical coming up here on July uh, the 1st, uh, and I'm now on sabbatical. Do I look more relaxed? And uh... So I took my holidays before my sabbatical, which is kind of strange, because people think a sabbatical is a holiday, and it's not a holiday, okay? Can I make that clear to you? Sabbatical is not a holiday, so I took my holidays prior to my sabbatical. So I had three weeks off in June, uh, but they've been—it's been a very stressful uh, three weeks for a number of reasons. One, my daughters were all in ball, and, and Adam was in ball finals and and playoffs and stuff like that. And I coached some teams and help out with that, and and uh, so you have that running around every every night of the week. Um, but I did something quite that I'll never do again, was I made public that I was going to get some projects done around the house during these three weeks. Men, the lesson today is do not make those thoughts public, okay? Because what's happened over the last three weeks is Jody has known well about these projects that I have and comes home with some expectation that there may be some progress towards The beginning of these projects, not even the completion of them, but the beginning of them. So every day she's come home and and these are visual projects. These are like deck repair, cleaning out the garage, um, you know, doing ornamental gardening type things, you know. So these are not things that I can just hope she doesn't see. In the first 10 seconds, she knows whether I've done anything at all today. So it's been really kind of stressful. Now, I have made some progress. Interestingly, as the, as the vacation time neared the end, like studying for an exam, you cram everything into about the last 72 hours because you want to have something to show for your time off, right? So I can barely hold. In fact, I'm, I'm glad there's a podium here. I wouldn't be able to hold my Bible or anything today because my hands are so arthritic. From painting and hammering and digging, and I'm, I've got paint on my cuticles and things like that that I'm still peeling off. So it's been a frantic last 72 hours. So I've almost enjoyed preparing for this message just because it's been a because I've been able to use it as an excuse. Well, I need to prepare my talk. <laughs> you know, I can't do the painting and stuff right now. But out of all of this, I've really come to understand that. Um, and again, not only the last three weeks, but as I've reflected on a on bunch of stuff going on in my life, sabbatical upcoming and where I am in my work life and stuff like that, I've, I've come to realize that like my, you know, my best intentions to do, you know, gardening and, and work around the house, my actions are not always matching up uh, with my attitudes. There's a disconnect there. There's a there's a, you know, there's a, what we call in psychology, there's a lack of goodness of fit between what I intend to do and what I hope to, and what I should be achieving, or what I publicly have said. So I've entitled this message, A Square Faith in a Round World, because I think, you know, in many ways, that's sort of where I'm at, and maybe some of you are at, as we, you know, we we're not Christians here on a Sunday morning only. We leave with the intention of taking the light into the world and, and of, of doing something and being something different than what the world expects of us. So I started to get into, you know, back into some real familiar passages. And this is, you know, uh, this is where I live, not being a theologian. I'm, I'm not courageous enough, like Stuart is, to tackle the bigger you know, tougher passages. Uh, and I kept coming back to a lot of Paul's writings because he, of anybody, seemed to be someone that I identify with in his openness and his struggles. You well know that he he talked and wrote to churches about his own struggles, about his own, you know, in fact, in Romans uh, 7, he talks a lot about that, you know, I don't understand what I'm doing, things I should be doing I don't do and things that I, you know, you know, do do, I shouldn't be doing. And he talks about this internal struggle that goes on. But the passage I want us to consider today, again, is about as familiar as, as it gets. Um, and, and all of us know this passage. But I want to give it a little bit of a twist today and talk about, I want to pull out a single word from this passage. But let's read it together. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy Now, how many times have we heard a sermon on this? How many times have we been asked to memorize this? In fact, for some of us, this may be our our creed, uh, especially that the first verse presenting our bodies as living sacrifices. Well, as a psychologist, I'm immediately drawn to a, to the third word of the second verse, conform. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of mind. In fact, I think Stu preached on that, that transformation part uh, a few weeks ago. Well, now, the reason I find this so curious is, that, again, that none of us wants to be characterized as a conformer, right? None of us wants to be eulogized. Kelly, wow, what a great guy. He just went along with the flow. He was just such an agreeable, conforming person. God bless him. None of us wants that, right? None of us wants to be remembered as a conformer. And yet, when I look at, again, my own personal experience, uh, I see this: the intersection between my faith and my world as being slippery, as being places where I do conform to the pattern of the world. And as a result... It has both immediate and, in some cases, according to this passage, uh, eternal effects. It pulls me away from true worship. It pulls me away from seeking and finding God's perfect, Christ's perfect will for my life. And so I often see, to to stretch this analogy a little bit, I often see my, my faith, the corners of it, being shaved off so that I fit into the pattern of the world so that my faith fits the pattern of the world rather than the other way around. That my faith, you know, it's the one that's driving and that's shaping my world experience and not the other way around. Now, again, I, as a psychologist, I, I came upon the interest in conformity really early on in my university career. Um, in fact, I am I, embarrassed to say it was a sociology class uh, that I, not a psychology class. I'm poking fun at Joel. Um, where we had to... One of the assignments was we had to go out and break a social norm. That was our assignment. We had to go out and break a social norm and then write about our experience. Now, social norms are those unwritten uh, rules of behavior that guide you know our day-to-day experience. So we were asked to go out and, and just break a social norm. So I chose a very interesting one, and I'm going to use Kristen here like Stuart does, sitting in the front row. The norm I broke was... I, for a day, I went around and instead of making eye contact, I lifted my gaze up right to the middle of a person's forehead and instead of looking at them when I spoke, I looked right at their forehead. That's quite uncomfortable, isn't it? I'm not looking at her eyes. Yeah, you've had this, right? So I went went around for the whole day and instead of making eye contact, I looked at people's foreheads when I spoke to them. Well, this is a great experience because people get really uncomfortable when you don't do what you're supposed to do, right? So they'd start, you know, some people would be, you know, they'd check their hair, you could tell, like, are they looking at something? Have I got a zit? Have I got dirt, chalk, marker, something on my... So they'd start to do very strange things when you didn't do what you're supposed to do. Now, other students, and I've had my students, Kristen was in one of my psych classes, we had, I had my students do this all the time, um, go out and stand on a street corner, and just look up into the sky, and you know what you'll find? People will stop and join you. They will look up and let's see what you're looking. And you could be looking at nothing, but they will stop. I guarantee you. And look up. Um, a lot of students go into a lot of people go into elevators, and rather than going in, and turning around, facing the door, just go into an elevator and just stand. Uh, in fact, um, Alan Funt's show, Hidden Camera, has some great old clips of, of, of uh, characters doing this. And sure enough, when the door opens again, you'll see people in the elevator have actually shifted there. They're actually facing the back of the elevator. They've conformed to this one person, or else the person will will turn sideways, and sure enough, they'll open the elevator doors, and everybody's turned sideways. They've conformed. I mean, Alan Funt made his life on breaking social norms and doing things to see if people will react in certain ways. So I've kind of had this, always had this this natural um, kind of inclination and desire to to explore the, 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 the principle of conformity. So I'm going to play around with this a bit uh, this morning, and I want us to look at, and I'm going to give you the you know, the junior introduction to what conformity is. And, I th- and I'm going to tie it back to what is Paul really getting at when he essentially gives this command to, to these believers? Do not conform any longer. So let's look at what conformity is, how does it work, and then, as I said, I'm going to close with saying, looking at, well, how does this possibly influence and affect our ability to find true worship? So, what is conformity? Let's look at a definition here. I've kind of given you a loose one, but here's a formal definition. Conformity can be defined as a change in a person's behavior or opinions as a result of real or imagined pressure from a person or a group of people. So, there's your intro psych textbook definition of what conformity is. Now, a couple of key words in there real or imagined. So, this can be you know, that somebody is truly pressuring you to do something that you may actually not agree with or it goes against what you stand for. Um, and we talk, you know, I've had my talk with my daughter, Alana, about peer pressure, you know. Uh, and really, peer pressure is not as, oftentimes, not as real as we think it is, it's oftentimes more imagined. And again, teaching adolescent development, we talk about the imaginary audience. People, you know, adolescents think that they're being watched and that people are noticing them all the time. You have to tell them, no, they're not. Nobody cares what you're wearing, really. You know, not everybody cares what you're reading or listening to or, you know. But we, again, confession, adults, we do this too. You know, Jody joked to me, why are you wearing a jacket today? Well, I'm like, well, because nobody else is going to wear a jacket. So I'm going to wear a jacket, you know, I'm going to be an anti-conformist uh, and I'm going to wear a jacket today, even though it's nice out, there's no reason to wear a jacket, but I, I wear a jacket. Um, and again, it's this real or, or uh, imagine pressure from, it can be as small as a single person or what I'm going to talk about today is a little bit more about the group pressure that you and I experience to fit into or conform to the pattern of the world. Now, conformity can be good. Um, We want conformity. In fact, conformity organizes our life very much on a day-to-day basis. Uh, We drive on a certain side of the road. We put our seatbelts on to conform. We do a lot of things to conform. Um, I was going to point fun at some of you this morning. You sit in the same place every Sunday, right? Or at least in the same general area. Somebody sits in your spot, that throws you right off, right? You conform, we conform, and, and you come in and go, well, I can't sit there because that's Dave and Diane's spot. I can't sit, no. Can't. So we conform, we don't, we don't sit in certain places, we don't do things. So it's, you know, it can be good, but it, and it organizes our lives. It, it, um, it, it helps us to, to not have to think about things because we just conform because we go, this is the way it's supposed to be. Now it can be bad, conformity can be bad. Um, when it leads us to do immoral or illegal things, you know, uh, we hear all the time about the, sadly, the um, uh, situation of drinking and driving, very much based on the principle of conformity, that everybody does it, or if you're drinking and driving, you think everybody does it, and thus you go, well, it's no big deal. I can do this. You know, my friends do this all the time. They go home, and they, they arrive safely and don't hurt anybody. I can. Well, that's... That's conforming behavior. Um, other things like racial discrimination. Uh, very much. I'd love to, to give a talk to us about our ideas on, you know, how we form our views about certain people groups, ethnic groups, that are very much based on social psychological principles of conformity. That it's comfortable, it's easy, but it's also bad. It's, but that's what drives a lot of people's behavior. Now, conformity can be neutral, too. Um, This could be as simple as wearing a tie to work, you know, um, you you just do it because it's not good or bad, you just do it. That's what people do, you wear a tie to work. Um, uh, Or, you know, another example, during Stampede, we wear clothes that we would not normally wear, thankfully, on a given day. You know, I was thinking, great that the royals were here, but now again the world thinks we all dress like cowboys, you know, Uh, just perpetuated that stereotype uh, again. Um, so we do this all. We, we you know, I mow my lawn some days, not because I've got a great desire to mow my lawn, but because my neighbors have mowed their lawn. Oh, great. Now my lawn looks bad. i got to mow my lawn, right? So conformity is not good or bad, but it's just, it's neutral. It's like doing the wave at the Flames game, too, or whatever, you know? Oh, great. You know, we raise our hands. We do... Now, we wouldn't normally... We wouldn't do the wave here, Probably. But well, we do it at the Flames game because that's what's expected. That's what's appropriate. And they're both planned and unplanned, too. Uh, conformity is sometimes we want to fit in, we want to go with the flow. Again, I probably wanted to dress like my son this morning in flip-flops and shorts and be nice and comfortable, you know, but I chose this uh, outfit. Um, I also put, on a, also put on a watch here. Uh, Helen, can you tell me what brand of watch that is? Just re- oh, Rolex. It is a Rolex. Actually, it's not a Rolex. <laughs> Rolexes are worth more than my first five cars put together. I bought this in Chinatown in New York for about 20 bucks. Right? A knockoff. But sometimes I wear this when I... Jody goes to all these fancy functions, you know, all these fundraisers sitting around with oil people. So sometimes I wear my Rolex. And I check the time a lot when I'm out at these events. <laughs> Can you... Can you look and see what time it is? Because I want to fit in with that crowd, right? Who have real Rolexes, where the letters are all not misshapen, kind of like mine are here, because it was done in a factory in China, you know? So sometimes we want to fit in, and we do things. And and again, the message today is not about being totally anti-conformist, because in many ways, you and I, we fit in, we attempt to fit in because it's expected, it's predictable, it helps us get along in our lives, and in some cases, it's, it is just easier to do that, to not stand out. But I want to talk to us about today those situations where we walk away from and we say to ourselves, or that little voice in our head goes, why did I do that? Why did I go with the crowd? Why did I say that? Why did I do that? And we walk away going, I had a chance here to stand up. I had a chance here to do something different based on my beliefs, and I didn't do it. Those are the kind of things that I think Paul is tapping into here when he says, do not conform any longer. It's those incidents where we want to reduce the amount of time we spend beating ourselves up about the you know, missed opportunities and lost chances we had to be an impact in our world, and and so that's what I think Paul is talking about. Now again, conformity can be expressed in at least two ways. and I want to get to the heart of this. We can either comply. Compliance is one type of conformity. Compliance is conformity that involves publicly acting in accord with social pressure while privately disagreeing. So it's going along with the flow, but knowing that you know we uh, we internally we disagree with that statement. Uh, I have on occasion in my life been given a penalty in Hockley, where I go to the penalty box, but I know I didn't do anything wrong. I know I didn't do anything wrong, right? That's compliance. Publicly, you know, we kick the boards and we slam our stick, you know, to show that we're going against what the person's saying, but we didn't do it, but we're going to follow, we're going to play by the rules. That's compliance. Another type of conformity is what's called acceptance. Conformity that involves both acting and believing in accord with the social pressure, so again here 's where you know household duties you know I vacuum, I prepare meals, I do numerous household tasks at the request of my wife, because I truly believe that what i 'm doing is contributing to are you 're getting the sarcasm here and what I <laughs> am doing is contributing to the overall well being of my family that 's acceptance, but you know what, we do a lot of those things we do things that we necessarily don't want to do but we do them because it's our role, it's our purpose. If we don't do it, it doesn't get done. So we believe it and we accept it and we carry on. So those are two types of conformity again. The the one that we were going to talk the, the type we're going to talk about today again leans more towards that compliance thing where we go we're doing something but we don't truly believe it in our hearts. And we're going against, in fact, in some ways, what we believe. Well, what do we know about conformity? Here's where I want to uh, give you a little lesson um, about conformity. Um, we've been studying conformity as, a, as social psychologists for well over 50 years. In fact, most of our research in conformity came about, came about as a result of uh, some horrendous world events that were happening, most notably uh, Nazi Germany. We, you know, as a society, as a, as a world... We all stood back at that event and went, okay, I understand people killing each other. You know, people are mentally ill, they're angry, they're impassioned, and somebody dies. How does an entire nation or a significant portion of that nation contribute to the killing and murdering of thousands and thousands of people? Well, social psychologists then began to study, well, how does conforming work? Because these were not, you know... These were not necessarily evil people, the ones that, that you know were part of the, uh, the Third Reich and a part of that, that movement. These were, not, these were people that had families, they had education, they had good jobs. They, these were not people unlike you and I. And yet social psychologists were kind of going, how does that happen? How, does, how do thousands of people kill thousands of other people and do so at the request of a single person? conformity at its extreme. So as a result of this, social psychologists started studying this, and one of the most notable social psychological studies uh, was done over 50 years ago by a a psychiatrist by the name of Solomon Ash, and he set out, interestingly, with a very curious hypothesis. He set out to prove that people would not conform to group opinions if there's an objective reality. He actually set out to prove that if people have something objective to look at and see and touch or taste, they won't go with the group because they won't, they won't deny what their senses are telling them and they won't go along with the social pressure. So his hypothesis was people in the face of objective reality will not go with the crowd. So he did set out with one of the simplest experiments that you can imagine, and he set up what's called the, famously called the line experiment. Um, so the line judgment experiment is very simple, and you're going to see a graphic here in a few minutes. But it's simply where you're brought in with a group of people, and you're shown three lines of varying lengths, and then you're shown a comparison line. And your job as a participant in this study is just to pick which of the three lines most closely matches the length of the comparison line. Simple, right? Most, in fact, most studies that are good are simple. Um, I'm going to show you what happened with this, uh, with this study here in common days because what Ash found was that he brought in anywhere between six and nine participants to this study. Really, only one of the people that came into the room was, was a subject in the experiment. The other six or seven or eight were all what we call confederates, they were in on the study. So, for the first couple trials, everybody goes through. They pick, you know, which line is equal to that line. This seems like, you know, everybody's looking at each other going, this is the most ridiculous experiment ever. Then about the third or the fourth trial, the person number one picks the line that is clearly not the same length as the other line. So does the second person. So does the third person. So does the fourth person. So does the fifth person. Then you as the subject, now it's your turn. Well, for the first couple trials, the the person actually stands up for themselves and says, no, it's not line A, it's line B. Go to the third trial, same thing. Go to the fourth trial, same thing. By about the fifth or sixth trial, guess what happens? The subject who starts to now agree with the group and go, even though I can see those lines aren't the same length, I'm going with what the crowd says. Now we Now, this study has been criticized because we think, well, 1950s, people are a lot more, you know, culturally congenial. They're more agreeable now in the, you know, in, in the new millennium. We're much more independent. We stand up for ourselves. We, guess what? This study has been replicated hundreds and hundreds of times with the exact same results. I'm going to show you a little video clip, so Jody's going to cue this up so you can see what this is like.
2: Conformity is going along with the group Modeling your responses after what the group is doing Doing exactly what the crowd, what everybody else is performing People today are generally considered more self-aware And sophisticated about the effects of social influence But are they less subject to conformity? Dr. Pratkanis decided to find out There will be a stimulus line over here on your left-hand side And all you'll need to do is to pick which of these lines is the same as the stimulus line. And we'll go around in order. And all you need to do is state the number. We'll start with subject number one. What is your response? Two. Subject number two. Two. Subject number... On the first two trials, the Confederates match the stimulus line to the standard line, giving the right answer. Five. Two. Subject number six. Two. Subject number seven. Two. On the third trial and thereafter, the Confederates One. give the obvious, incorrect response. One. Subject three. One. One. Subject four. One. Subject five. One. Subject six. Two. Subject seven. One. Subject one. Two. Subject two. Two. As this subject hears the rest of the group give the wrong answer, he initially resists the influence of group pressure. Subject 6. 1. Most subjects start out defying the group, but after repeated trials, many of them begin to conform. 2. Subject 4. 2. Subject 5. 2. Subject 6. 2. Subject <laughs> 7. Two. Subject number 4, what is your response? 1. Subject number five. One. Subject number six. Your turn. One. <laughs> Their voices may drop. They may know they're giving the wrong answers. But they eventually give in. five.
1: Two. Okay. So, simple experiment. And again, I wanted to show you a more recent clip uh, to show you. Uh, and very interesting to see how that subject number six... When he knows or she knows that they're going against what they are seeing, they start to show physical manifestations. You saw the guy, you know, rubbing his face, looking around. You know, some of them literally start to sweat. They start to, their voices drop, so they have a physical reaction to this. So, without dwelling on this, the results of this study showed that, and and all studies since then have shown that. About 30% of people who do this very simple compliance or conformity task over the course of about 10 or 12 trials of this conform at least once. So over the course of 10 or 12 trials of doing this, they will conform at least one time during this. Now, what that means is 70% of people are not conforming. So some people are, you know, standing up against the group and going with what they see visually. But what I want us to take away from this is, and the genius of Ash's experiments, is that he puts up and pits some social motives against one another. He pits the motive uh, of the desire to be right versus the desire to be approved by others. He pits merit versus loyalty. He pits achievement versus social approval. And what happens as a result of of studies like this, and and again, Ash's study is not the only study we've done in conformity. We've done all sorts of permutations on studies of conformity. And what we find is that the, the, the push or the power of conforming because of social approval is universally strong. And interestingly enough, there's been some studies that have actually looked at uh, pulling in samples of Christians and giving them moral dilemmas and giving them... And guess what we find? Again, about 30% of people, Christians, go with the crowd even though it goes against their deepest convictions and understanding of gospel. So what do we learn from this? Well, a couple of things we learn is that there's three processes active, and I'm going to zip through this to get to back to the passage. One is that we we conform because of what's called informational social influence. We look to others to see what the right thing is to do, and if others are doing it, it must be right. And again, all sorts of examples of this. Um, uh, Blood donor uh, uh, agencies um, will circulate lists of people who have signed up to give blood. Guess what? You and I look at that list and we go, Oh, Steve Shrout's giving blood. I guess I better give blood too, right? Because I want to be like Steve. And so I, I give blood too, even though that's not my favorite thing to do. Polling data in elections. We're more like when that polling data starts to come out, we want to be aligned with who? The winners. We want to be aligned with the group that looks like they're in the lead, unless we've got very strong convictions philosophically. Um, again, uh, case in point with culture here, many of us looked in horror at the Vancouver riots. Uh, that, that came about as a result of the of the Stanley Cup loss and all the commentaries in the papers were wrong you know i heard people blaming social blaming media oh it's cuz the kids are playing all those aggressive you know fighting games it's no this was very simple social psychology of the hundreds of thousands of people that were in downtown vancouver there were a couple hundred or a thousand who started to look at each other going oh that person's jumping on the police car He's not getting in trouble. I guess I can do this too, right? They're looking for the cues in their environment, and what do they do? They follow those cues, informational social influence. Another type of of, uh, uh, conformity process that's at work is what's called normative social influence. Going against the group is difficult, and so we give in because we don't want to be seen as being different. We want to be, and this is truly the social pressure piece. And again, here's where alcohol and drug use, uh, consumerism, fashion, we buy things that we really don't need or want. Why? Because it makes us fit in. It makes us more comfortable. We're able to be more confident. We look right, we dress right, we drive the right vehicle. Why? Because it's implied social pressure for conformity. Now, interestingly enough, recent social psychological studies have started to use technology to measure brain activity to see what's going on when people conform. And those that don't conform and stand up uh, against the group uh, have found that um, subjects who resist uh, temptation to conform show a greater deal of activity in certain parts of their brains. Uh, One part being the amygdala, which is that central part of the brain that's really involved in emotion processing. Um, And so going against the grain... It's, it's also the area of the brain that, that, that um, uh, conceives of pain and processes pain. So people that go against social pressure, that social norm, actually have a physical response. Parts of their brain actually reacts as a result of this. But it's also socially painful. Going against, going swimming upstream means that in some ways, in extreme cases, we may be ostracized. We may be set apart because of what we do, that doesn't go. And as a a result of this, you know, we find ourselves being excluded. And again, could probably do a whole talk on how this happens in the workplace, right? Because the workplace is the place where most of us as adults spend the best part of our days coming up against things where we make decisions to be in or be out. And workplaces can be very stressful because we have to choose whether we are in or out in all sorts of activities and some of them that we don't dis- that we don't agree with and as a result of that then we don't get invited to the meetings we don't get invited to the coffees we don't get invited to the socials why because we go against that social norm so it has a social cost the last one is Uh, talking about uh, the process that's at work here is what's called social identity. Membership in the group takes on meaning for the individual as a result of their conforming behavior. And again, we can explain all sorts of social phenomena with this. Cult or gang membership is very much based on, you know, yeah, they're doing illegal, dangerous, immoral activities, but guess what? They're accepted by that group. And the identification they have with that group is powerful enough to keep them doing those activities because... Their membership in that group is so important, and it becomes their source of identity. So where does this leave us? Let's close this off with getting back to the passage. We know a little bit more about conformity. We know a little bit more about the processes that are active. What is Paul getting into here with this single line about, do not conform to the patterns of this world? Well, a couple of things, and I've narrowed this down to a multitude of of responses and reflections that I had on this passage. One of them is we cannot and should not underestimate the power of worldly social pressure. One of the worst things that you and I can do as believers, as Christians, is think that we are not constantly being barraged by requests, either implied or very overt, to come along with the world. We live in the world that is very much wants us to move in their direction, and some of the some Christians I've met um, in past years seem to deny that that there is no pressure or that they're strong enough to go against it. Sadly, we've got notable you know world Christian examples of people who have fallen from grace so terribly because they denied that they're like you and me up against social pressures each and every day part of the potency to conform is in the subtlety of the method and the messages by which the world tries to sway us you know this is you know very you know very few occasions in our lives will you and i like missionaries or like you know world leaders and world believers that have come before us many of us will not have a gun held to our head and said choose faith or choose not If you choose faith, you will die. Very few of us will have that experience. It's much more subtle than that about choosing which direction we will go to. And we have to be much more attuned as Christians to the fact that you and I live in a world that is constantly pushing against us. And that if we deny that, we are much more likely to be actually drawn into that than we are by acknowledging and saying, you know what? This is not the pattern that Christ set out for us. This is not the pattern of the world that was intended for us. Second thing we learn from this, or that I learned from this, probably more so me, that following the cues of others when we are unsure of what we should do can have more than just social or intellectual consequences. It can actually lead us away from what Paul has called this true and proper worship. Um... You saw it kind of comically, and we all laughed at those those that subject six when they knew that their turn was coming up, you know, and you could see the social anxiety on their faces. Um, but guess did you see what that one the guy in the blue shirt particular was doing? He was looking over as each one gave their answer. Well, one of the worst things that we can do, and again, this comes from both social psychological evidence and Paul was tapping into this here, is when we're unsure of what to do, one of the worst things we can do in some ways is look to others for cues. And Paul is saying here, we have to get back to looking to Christ. Because to, to look to the world, even to religious leaders, and again, here's where I'd say, you know, we are so fortunate in our community of faith here, Um, to be able to look to one another for support. And I'm going to end with that, talking about the encouragement that we can do. But that looking to others for our cues on what to do will not always be 100% accurate. Because we are human too, and even though we're filled with the Spirit of of Christ, we still, on a daily basis, have to make decisions on on how we respond. Um, You know, I've... uh, um, our family has a guilty pleasure this spring of getting sucked into the uh, America's Got Talent uh, TV show. Are any of you sharing that uh, with us? There was a terribly beautiful example of this. There's a contestant named Danny Shay on the show, and she's this cute little singer-songwriter, got up there and, and sang her own song, an original composition, and uh, failed. She messed up on the song. And so... Uh, Pierce Morgan, who's the evil Brit on the show who likes to criticize and and, uh, be particularly harsh, says, we'd rather you cover somebody else's material than do your own material. So if you would do that, we're going to give you another chance. Pressure. Conform. Sadly, what does she do? She says, okay, I'll I'll do some cover songs. I'll cover some other people's material. She walked away from her true identity, which was this nice little singer-songwriter, and essentially said, you know what, to be successful, to fit in, to try and make it, I'll do what you ask me to do. Kind of a sad graphic experience of that. A third thing I've learned from this passage, the ability to resist conforming to the world involves leading with action. Our bodies. Now, I'll go back to the first passage here, and I know we're up against the time here. Go back to the first uh, verse in this passage that says, um, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. It's an action. It's an action. It says, do something with your body, and then you will be able to resist this social pressure. In fact, one of the interesting things that came, uh, Pratt Canis, um, uh, later on in this video clip uh, that I haven't shown here, says, The best thing you and I can do with social pressure is to get out of the situation and then reflect on what we should do. It's a physical activity. Well, guess what? Paul's a pretty good social psychologist because the first part of this passage says, Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, do something. Do something. Rather than, you know, I'm going to be harsh here because I, I find myself uh, doing this sometimes. I will pray for the strength to resist. Rather than doing something to get out of the situation first and then praying about, okay, now what should my action be? Because when you're in that situation, when you're in the heat of that moment of social pressure, we are subject to being pulled into looking at the reactions of others, the cueing that others are giving us, and not reacting. Last comment, and we'll finish with this. What else is Paul telling us about this passage and about conforming? And again, this is where I find great encouragement. Ours is a social faith. We are in this together. You and I do not have to resist conformity as singular individuals because that's when it's tough. That's when it's difficult. Non-conformity to the patterns of this world and renewing our minds is a social interpersonal activity. And again, New Testament in particular, and Old Testament, is filled with reminding us that ours is a social faith. We go through as a people, a people of Israel. Um, i even pulled up some passages. Matthew eighteen twenty, wherever two or three of you are gathered in my name. Matthew 18, 19, if two of you agree on anything, more than one, it will be done. Hebrews 10, 25, let us not give up meeting together. So many of these little snippets of things are not about lone ranger mentalities and faith it's about knowing and relying on each other as we are allies in swimming upstream against what the world would want us to do the command in verse one is for a collective giving of our bodies of minds do you notice it's written in the plural it's not about you individually it's about us as bodies of believers as, as as a body of believers And this is how we best defend against the slow, subtle effect of uh, conforming to the pattern of this world. And then, when you read the rest of the passage of Romans 12, guess what it talks about? All the things that you and I can do in activity to go against the world. Support, encouragement, accountability, confession, forgiveness, strengthening. When you get home later today, read verses 3 to 21. And that will show you what Paul was getting at when he's saying, if you want observable behavioral things you can do to not conform to the pattern of this world, boy, here's a list. Here's a list of things you and I can do. So the title of, of my talk today was um, this notion of a square faith in a round world. Steve, why don't you come up, bring the group up. The title of our talk today was about a square faith in a round world. And I guess this was, as I said to you at the beginning, this was more as much about me saying, I can't be content with my square faith trying to fit into a round world. I have to always be uncomfortable with places and spaces of where my faith is being compromised to fit into the world. And maybe it's, you know, maybe Huey Lewis had it right. Maybe it's hip to be square, Right? Maybe it's good that our faith and our actions don't fit into the world as cleanly and as neatly as they should. They should stand out as different. I want to finish by reading um, uh, the passage again from Eugene Peterson's uh, paraphrase uh, in the message. And then I'll ask Steve to lead us as we close. So here's, verse 12, or here's chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 in a paraphrase. So here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out, Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings out the best of you and develops a well-formed maturity in you. And that is my prayer for us today.
0: Thank you, Kelly. I'm just thinking about how I can take that back to my uh, workplace and wow my colleagues with what I learned today. But I want, to, I want to say this. I was reflecting on some of the words and some of the thoughts here, and it dawned on me that one non-conformational person can transform the world. And we serve a non-conformational God. He came into the world in uh, ways that did not show conformity. He was born of a virgin. He was a king born to a carpenter. He learned the ways of the faith as a child. And as he grew, he made his ministry on non-conforming to the Jewish leaders of the day. But he launched a transformation that has radicalized the faith for over 2,000 years now. And one of the things that he's given in his non-conformational ways is love. it's because of that love that we have extreme faith today. The world does not understand the love that we should have and we should give. It's non-conformational.
1: It's not self-centered. So I want to thank you for that message today, Kelly.